Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. The Paradise Center for the Arts is a vibrant cultural and artistic gathering spot in historic downtown Faribault. The Paradise is committed to offering high-quality visual and performing art opportunities for Faribault and our region. Regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the Upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. I want to thank you so much for tuning into the show as we celebrate all things creating and, of course, share our stories. So let's get ready and tune our imaginations together. My guest last week, Vera Hiranandani, author of Emile and the After, spoke that her hope for the readers of her novels is that we get to live in a world where we can show up as our whole selves. And I've been thinking about that ever since our conversation. What I want to add to that thought is that we need to embrace our fellow companions on this life's journey as they are, their whole selves. If we are all humans, and we, as you know, everybody has stuff that they bring to any situation, we have more in common than we admit, kindness to each other is free, and our generosity of spirit and recognition of the humanity of all of our fellow travelers will deepen our connections and lighten the burden of this journey wherever that takes us. And today, our journey is going to require a call for help. So find the phone, dial, report the details, try to stabilize the situation, wait, try something, listen for the sirens, process the scene. Are you prepared for what has become your next? While we're waiting, I want to repeat a few lines from the show that we did two weeks ago about medical aid and dying. I want you to join us for the whole Arts Any Radio show as we talk about this life's full journey. But I do want to take a moment to give you notice that we're going to be talking about both dreams and dying, living and end of life, medicine and pain, compassionate choices and injury, death, suicide, grief and regret, violence and riots, life's inequities and shared humanity. And these can be anxious conversations but these can also be eye-opening conversations. So if these topics are difficult or if you feel need some support, reach out to talk to someone about your thoughts and feelings. Talking can save your life, and there is someone who wants to support you, and there is possible for change to happen and for you to be open to that. So there is no one I would rather have show up for our emergency than the firefighter EMT. This week, we're going to talk about these calls for help and the world at the firehouse. A writing teacher once told me that the stories about the subcultures that we don't understand make the best stories. And this is absolutely true of our conversation today. Open your mind and heart. Our stories are all connected. We'll see that today. And we will have an after story at some point in our lives. And we will need help at some point in time. 
My guest today on Art Zany Radio is author Jeremy Norton, and he's going to discuss his new book, Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. He's been a firefighter EMT with Minneapolis Fire Department since 2000. His website is jeremynorton.info, and his book, his new book, Trauma Sponges, is going to take us to all kinds of emergency calls. But the great thing about this book is that then he zooms out to look at the bigger picture. This is a fascinating read that explores the way his work as an emergency responder reveals the truth about illness, injury, death, and dying, and the struggles of our systems to support our communities, the inequities of healthcare, the masculine culture of the firefighting world, the ways that racism affects us, the pains of the pandemic, the trauma of the George Floyd killing, and the protests in Minneapolis. He is thoughtful, persuasive, and compassionate in his truth-telling. This is a marvelous and smart study of these issues from his world, and this book might change your perspective on current events or even the way that you live. Welcome to Art and Zany Radio, Jeremy. That was kind of a long introduction, but it's such a big book. Thank you for writing it. It's it's incredible. Well, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? I am okay. This has been uh, we got a little uh, <laughs> rocky start, but we're we're good to go now. And I want to start our story with the um, story of Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> It's something you mentioned in your book that really caught my attention because it, you know, Clifford has a book, Clifford Fights Fires, and there are so many examples of these versions of the firemen. Kids get the idea that all firefighters are heroes. They get to drive this super cool red truck and save buildings and people. And then grown-ups yeah. le- learn about these through movies and TVs that each firehouse is like a soap opera, right? And then, um, we, but that's not the, the real way things go. And so these stories kind of glamorize the job. It's really actually a messy, powerful, daunting, heartbreaking job. But you've done that, and you've opened that firehouse garage door for us, and also the patients' bedrooms to show us the realities. How hard was it to take your stories and turn them into a book? And how hard is it to break down that wall? Oh, those are two very good different questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, I... I, I say, I think, pretty early in the book that I started writing even before I got hired in the late 90s when I was just trying to make sense of the kind of inscrutable labyrinth of Minneapolis civil service and then trying to understand that there were skirmishes between the civil service, the city proper, the fire department, and the unions. Uh, 24 years later, I have a better understanding, but it still makes no sense. Um <laughs> But I started writing it, and you know, as I say, I I had a little bit of an idea that you know, contemporary any like full time contemporary fire department, uh, city department is going to be responding largely to medical emergencies because that's how the nine one one system works. We are. Uh, I'm sorry, I've got. A, I'm getting over a cold, so I apologize for sniffling. Um. So there are generally more fire trucks and stations positioned around every city to respond quickly for fires. And in the 1970s and 80s, with budget cuts and a higher increase in 911 calls, uh, city managers realized that firefighters would make good emergency responders as well. So uh, some cities have firefighter paramedics. Minneapolis is one that has only firefighter EMTs. So for almost any 911 medical call, dispatch sends a fire truck and an ambulance. Um, And so we respond to 
all the the whole wild range of 911 emergency calls and as i go into the in the book the good samaritan system kind of demands that every call be taken seriously as if it's a life or death call mm-hmm. what has happened in our culture now i think is we there's been a loss of the understanding that if you're just calling with a question hey i think i see something on the ice hey i've got a weird feeling in my chest somebody just drove by my house i'm not sure what that person is doing the system takes these things literally and because again with budget cuts and kind of systemic pressures uh, most dispatch systems have been reduced down to kind of a, an algorithm flow chart. So if you say X, they have to do Y. And so almost every call that's just a question necessitates an emergency response. And uh, as I, uh, which means that if you just say, I've got a weird feeling in my finger, what do you think it is? Dispatch is going to send a fire truck and a, a paramedics for a possible stroke a possible heart attack. You know, if you look out your window and say, I see somebody sitting outside, I don't know what's happening. It could come in as someone unconscious, someone unresponsive, someone threatening. Mm -hmm. And we can look around the country at all the places where police have been shown up to investigate and have led to a fatal encounter that no one intended, but that is what has happened. On the medical side, we end up forcing people, the paramedics kind of end up having to force people go to the hospital because of liability. So if you have a weird feeling and you look up WebMD and WebMD says you're either dying or <laughs> it's an itch. So you call dispatch, you call 911 to ask for help and suddenly we all show up and you're like, I didn't want any of this, right? But that's how the system works. And so from the very beginning, I started compiling Different tales, anecdotes, vignettes about the like the range of emergency response, and I also start trying to make sense of the the world I was seeing because, and we you know we can talk about this in a couple of minutes that you're not prepared, you're not not nowhere in the literature when you're applying for the fire department do they go into really what you're actually going to be doing, right? So that's 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 what kind of generated the book. I've always had a literary mindset. I do have a degree in writing. Um, and I I was fascinated by the kind of the human stories and the continuum and the connection. And so I have been working on the book in one form or another since 1999. Um, so there, you know, so that's, that's both answers. And then opening up the, the apparatus bay doors and telling you like, that's, I started seeing not just the vignettes, but the human connections and then the systemic connections. And that's really something I push in the book that there are individuals, but all of the individuals are operating within a systemic. Yeah, and that is what makes this book so fascinating. <laughs> and unlike a lot of other books that have been written about the firefighter world, and I want to send out a big congratulations this week. Your book was nominated for a Minnesota Book Award for Memoir and Nonfiction. So congratulations on that. Thank you. How crazy is that? I am so honored for that. That just blows me away. It's it's an exciting time. I love going to the Minnesota Book Awards, and so you don't know yeah. about those. Um, it's a lot of fun, so I, I wish you a lot of luck in that. And um, I thought that it was really interesting that, you know, at first you started writing about sort of just generally life and death and dying, but then as you, you know, spent time on it, it's almost like the world um, gave you the perfect you know, kept giving you the perfect framework to keep going deeper and, and, you know, keep going into these issues in 
what was happening in society and the cultural shifts and some charged nat- national events. And, uh, you, you know, like you mentioned, those interrelated connections. And so tell us about that evolution of, you know, kind of thinking you're doing one thing and then realizing, oh, my gosh, this is much bigger. Absolutely. And, and I would just say, Polly, you've made my day because having someone who's actually read the book oh. makes me so <laughs> well, <laughs> tickles I, me because I, I've, I've you know, had a couple events. <laughs> I saw that. I, I love that. But I've had a couple events where I'm all excited and nerding out and talking to a bookseller or whatever. And they have that kind of deer in the headlights look I'm like, oh, crud. They actually haven't read it. They just were being nice or they were quoting the back copy. So I really appreciate that. Oh. Yes, that's a very, that's a great and astute uh, observation. Um, I, I shifted the book. Uh, so I sold the manuscript in late 2020. I was shopping around uh, through the pandemic thinking, hey, it's a, you know, what a great time. Everyone's stuck at home. I bet all these editors are just dying to have random books come at them. I was wrong. Um <laughs> And Eric Anderson, who is a stellar editor at University of Minnesota Press, just a great, great advocate for writing and for literature. He's just an awesome, awesome mind for this stuff. Eric, Eric was the one who uh, was interested in the book initially and as and took it on. And as he started going over it, uh, like the winter of 2021, I I said, hey, um, I've got a couple sections here that I want to add in. Because when I, the manuscript I sold was much more of a, kind of a continuum of EMS calls with aspects of the sociology, but it was still what I'd been working on for years. And it was really just trying to show the spectrum from before, before birth to after death and all the range of calls. And through that, I was kind of touching on some of the sociology and, you know, I touched on some of the history and, and kind of the endemic or not endemic, but the ingrained kind of racial and gender issues and, and, and class issues within emergency response service, all that. And then the pandemic happened and I was taking notes through every variation, pre-vaccination, post-vaccination, Delta, Omicron. And as the nation became increasingly unhinged, I was like all caps, screaming at my at my keyboard trying to write about it um and but i also you know i i recognized through the not so much the the killing of george floyd and the immediate aftermath the uprising but the afterward to that how consistent it all was to the country and the state systems that I've I've been existing in and thinking about for years. And so there's a way in which, and I, and I say that in the book, that responding to the, the killing of George Floyd, people think was, you know, a, a, a signal, seminal event in, in, in my career or my life. But I say that I've been on other death by officers prior to that, and it fit, you know, and it actually fit in a couple different patterns. And so I, I went to Eric and I said, hey, after I after I get done testifying in the both the state and the federal trials with the officers, I'm gonna be able to write about this. And and additionally in the in my research, I I'm trying to articulate something that I've not seen really discussed anywhere else, which is the connection between from a nine one one call by an un, unwitting or 
you know, semi-malicious citizen to the dispatch response, to the emergency responders response, how many people, but particularly young men, you know, of non-white men, men of mm -hmm. color, uh, black and brown men, have been hurt and killed when they are having some sort of mental or emotional crisis by responders who did not start out the call intending to kill them. So the number of unarmed men of color who've been killed through interactions with police or with emergency responders. And I've been on several. And the more I researched, the more I thought, this isn't some, as simple as they are racist people. Like there, there's definitely class issues, there's cultural issues, there's racial blindness, absolutely. But a lot of it is a structural failure to better train and better understand for emergency responders what happens when you go to somebody who is having a psychotic reaction, a diabetic, someone with Alzheimer's. And so the center of the book is this long in, uh, articulation and investigation of the breakdown and how people keep dying and in no city, no state, no federal do we actually change how we address that stuff? And so I said to Eric, hey, I'm going to shift this book a little bit. And he was pretty game and he went with it. And so, yes, I, I the first half of the book, I kind of, you know, joking or not jokingly, uh, make the allusion to uh, our boy William Blake and say it's the Songs of Innocence. And I'm trying to give a casual reader an understanding of uh, the EMS system, the kind of gutter end of healthcare, which is the 911 system. All the range of calls that we see from you know heart attacks to falls from a ladder to car wrecks to everything um and and then give some of the background the sociological background of you know particularly fire stations where it was such a bastion of kind of straight white men who are engaging with you know largely people of color and people without means in our culture and how how ripe that is for a deeper understanding, but also for problematic, simplistic reduction. Um, and then I hit the pandemic. I get into kind of the sociology of emergency response, how it plays out, like racial bias or blindness plays out. Um, and then at the end, I end up shifting and talking about kind of what does it mean to be a responder who spends a career immersed in the suffering of others, how we can not become broken and bitter ourselves, how we can not put up walls, because there is kind of a crisis now. Uh, and it's not so much it's a new crisis, but it's a recognition that the former ways of being bottled up and uh, alcoholic and, you know, abusing pills and being shut off from our families, that didn't work well. And so rethinking how emergency responders handle so much stuff in the career, like that's one of the challenges. And so that's kind of how I address the book and say, you know, on one hand, I think I'm very congruent. I feel very grounded in my existence and in my work. And at the same time, the entire book is a reflection of a career spent in trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So it is not an easy book. There, There's a lot of humor. I think I'm kind of dryly funny, I, I'd say, and I tell my dogs and children that all the time. Um, but, you know, but it's, yeah, there's not a whole lot of wins in our world, right? Like, so yeah, we like, you know, I've saved a handful or a bunch of lives, but not everyone's life goes on well. And, and it's mostly you're witnessing every day I go to work or every single firefighter EMT in the nation goes to work. We are seeing people's hard moments and last moments, and that's a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, I mean, as you, you allude to, there's a lot to consider in this uh, book. And 
you know, we could spend a whole entire semester with the topics that are included in this book. And I hope it is used in a lot of classrooms and book clubs and, you know, different things for people to explore. So we are just going to touch the surface, I think, of all of these during our conversation. I do want to let people know we're talking about trauma sponges, dispatches from the scarred heart of emergency response. Jeremy is coming to Northfield. He will be at Content Bookstore, and that event is happening on um, oh my goodness, February 8th, Thursday, February 8th at uh, 7 p.m. And everybody's invited to join us at Content to talk about the book and to um, hear some more stories. And I encourage people to to do that because this is so insightful. So it, it really did grab me at, at so many different levels. But I want to start with some of the simplest things. And, and this is a skill that you have that I hadn't expected to read about that was really essential, I think, for you to be able to come to those conclusions. And that is it's your ability to read situations and people accurately and quickly is, you know, essential, right? That 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 ability to add, not only you're not looking at just the wound or the symptoms of the patient, but you're look or the building, you're looking at the crowd, the patient who's reporting or if they're able to talk or the family that's surrounding the ill or the injured and what they're saying and doing it makes the, the call so much more complex. So you see, you know, the results of how society shapes a situation. And um, you report that this is a book about emergency medical work, about human behavior, how people live and die and about our systems, as we mentioned, and the system of race, class and gender shapes so much of what happens to whom it happens who responds, and how they respond. So you have to be able to be compassionate and non-judgment and sort of acknowledge the people in those place. What, um, when did you know that that was an essential skill in responding to medical emergencies? Um, well, it's, the, it's, it's an interesting thing because you can't really teach that. Yeah. Right? Like, I've always been just kind of a weirdo <laughs> and you know ner nerdy like multitasking full of illusions you know lonely childhood man i spent a lot of time reading books in the dictionary so like Yay, on our <laughs> <laughs> like on on my way to one of my first fires back as a rookie right as you know right as the you know, right at like 5.36 in the morning, the sun was beginning to come up and I spent about two minutes while we were fighting this fire trying to remember the name uh, for an Abed or Abad. I can't pronounce I have no, I have no pronunciation because I read too much alone. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the poem to the breaking dawn, right? That's not really a conversation I was having with other firefighters on the scene. Um, and, and I'm not saying that I'm singular because lots and lots of us are very smart and very uh, interesting in very many ways. Um, but I do believe that the best of us are able to understand a context, see a big picture, have a generosity of spirit and kind of a bonhomie, you know, where – most people's emergencies are not that bad, right? So many of the calls we go to are not that bad. And what, what it requires is somebody who's kind of unflappable and kind, right? And But the problem was, I think, for so long, you know, it, it was a bunch of, you know, in, in the past generation, Vietnam vets, you know, so generally white men who'd been to war, so they were 
un, you know, supposedly un, unbothered, un, you know, inflappable, but unbothered by Gore. But a lot of them, and we've we've seen how poorly the country handled Vietnam. So a lot of these folks were, you know, suffering from or carrying their own trauma, which meant there was a lot of very male, masculine um, terror and panic and meanness. Um, and a lot of times they, they they kept that for each other and then faked it on the scenes, right? Uh, but no, I think, you know, the the basics of what we're taught really don't capture or even touch on the human factors. And I, th- and I think just some of us are just really good at being kind and compassionate and taking in a bigger picture. I mean, I think, and this is what, you know, my plug for, you know, as an old school, like liberal arts student, all the history I've read, all the, you know, the, the cultural history, the cultural studies, all the literature, books, poems, that has shaped my understanding of human behavior, human nature, and the, and the connections between things. Um, and I do think that that has really helped me. And that I've been fortunate to have, like I became interested in the fire department through uh, a woman from D.C., another woman, uh, another D.C. native, but a woman who came out. But as I was learning about the job through her and her cohort of kind of second wave, you know, the earliest kind of female pioneers in Minneapolis in the fire department, I wasn't hearing about just the kind of glamour of fighting fires and being badasses. It was them fighting the daily battle against being dismissed, you know, like always questioning, are they being mean to me because I'm a woman, because I'm gay, or just because they're jerks? There's an A word that I will substitute out for the radio public. Um, yes. And, uh, and, you know, and, and that's, and that, you know, and I said, like, that made me think of, you know, like my mom, who was uh, a lawyer in the early 70s, like, second wave feminists then breaking the glass ceiling were like they couldn't learn how to be doctors or professors or lawyers by themselves what a white guy would have they had to they also had to fight through the resistance to their existence mm-hmm. right so black doctors black lawyers all you know female of any race being dismissed not being given the kind of the cultural codes made them have to work you know almost twice as hard just to fit in and even then they might be not be accepted you know, the fire department is an atavistic kind of hermetic profession and world. And so that was still happening in the 90s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, I mean, and there's so much of that in here that um, kind of illuminates that, those structures that, that um, keep that going. And that was a, a fascinating piece of it. Um, and it's such a complex system um, so because if you think about it, it, as you illuminate for us, there are, you know, procedures and, and reports and cultures. Um, and there's a lot of people who just say this is the way it's been for a long. This is what it is for a long time. But in between all of those things, you have supervisors and operators and police officers, EMTs, administrators, budgets, technologies, training, voters, politicians, families, race, class, gender. It's all it's all on there with every call that you get and every action that you have. And it's kind of a big list. Um, and so I, I think, you know, for us as citizens, what I was thinking about was one way we can help make changes in the system is what you talked about at, at first is when we make a 911 call, we need to know what kind of a response is going to come and what 
information we give, how that affects what we what happens. And sometimes it's not what people expect. And so just teaching people about how to be better at using that. I know, I, I think here in Northfield, I know we have like a non-emergency number. And I assume a lot of places have that. Um, is that something that you would, you know, want to have people learn from your book? <laughs> certainly, certainly. But, you know, and I say, uh, alpha and omega, it's money, 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 money <laughs> drives everything, right? So that um, I, I had uh, an editor when I was passing the manuscript around in, the, in early in mid 2000 or 2020, excuse me. And uh, she said, oh, uh, this seems like you're, you're writing a book about healthcare reform. And I said, I absolutely am not. I'm not. <laughs> I am not. But also, here's the short version. You know, it is um, driven by money, for-profit hospitals, insurance companies. I don't have billions to lobby the government. I am nobody. I'm, I'm right, I think, but that's irrelevant, mm. right? And so I, I daily think about PSAs that I wish I could, uh, I could launch, but I am not in charge and I'm not king. So, um, <laughs> but because even if we have better, like you know, after in in Minneapolis. And I think in many cities across the country, you know, after the events of, of, of 2020 and not just the killing of George Floyd, but several of the, several of the, con uh, not concurrent, but overlapping deaths by officers, pu very public killings of unarmed civilians, you know, people started, you know, white people kind of belatedly realized that racism was a real thing. And suddenly everyone was concerned. And so it's like, don't call the police. Don't do this. Don't do that. And on one hand, it's well meant. The other hand, it's, it's, it's uh, not practical. And, and the, but the other part is people don't understand that if you call, like the woman who called in Aurora, Colorado, saying she saw a suspicious looking person outside of her house, did not intend for Elijah McClain to be killed by the police mm. and the paramedics. But that happened. Right. There are consequences to our our uh, unthinking gestures. If you call 911 because you think you smell something, you don't expect seven fire trucks to show up. But something about the way you phrase it, dispatch takes in and the algorithm sends it's a possible gas leak, possible explosion. You have a headache, but you don't say that you've had a headache for five, six days because you also have the flu. So all this stuff that gets left out or you know, we're talking two different languages mm -hmm. and then we all come stamp stampeding in and you're upset and it's like overwhelmed or this isn't what you intended. Um, but I know that and I get snippy with dispatchers because they have to follow the, like they're not allowed to deviate from this script often. And they're, and they are, uh, and a lot of the old ones who had really good discretion and inference through experience, that's been kind of removed by this, um, you know, budget efficiency because older, like they, they start cutting positions. So we don't have as many dispatchers any longer and dispatchers are phenomenal, but when they're not allowed to use their own discretion to hear what I'm saying and ask a qualifying question, they have mm -hmm. to follow this flow chart and, and it's wasteful and it's counterproductive and no one, there is no they there. There is no there there either. Meaning there's no one who's actually looking at this and saying, is this what needs to be do done? Is this working? Because everyone's afraid of getting sued. 
Mm, yeah, you're right. That is such a, a big player. And that's, and the job has changed. I, I think one of the things you mentioned is, and, and we talk, touched on it briefly, is that, you know, fires have gone down. There are a lot less fires. And the response, you know, the way that, that firefighters, EMTs respond is with medical issues. And, you know, that is not something that is taught in the training and something that people aren't necessarily aware of. And even within the culture of the fire department, that 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 is uh, not taught. Right. People don't expect that that's a part of the job. And so, you know, there's there's those revealing insights that you give about what happens inside the fire department with the those that are a part of you know, responding. And I'd, I'd love it if you could touch on some of that. And maybe, you know, do you feel like maybe this book could make a change within that culture about um, not only what their job actually is, and what society is, is facing, but how changes can be made to make it better for everybody? Well, I mean, certainly, I, 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 I would think so. I would hope so. But that would require people to read the book. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, and, you know, it's a big, thick book full of, you know, polysyllabic words and not a lot of pictures. So um, I, I don't, you know, I, I hope, like, I've had several people from educational backgrounds and from medical backgrounds say that, you know, they want to use it in, in their in their classes. Um, I've, you know, I, I'm not going to force any of our rookies to have to buy my book because that's weirdly uh, vain. Um, but I do believe that what I'm saying offers as as good a primer for what's going to happen as anything they're going to get in rookie school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, uh, and I say in there, and this kind of epiphany hit me while I was thinking about all this and revising it, that uh, I'm on the a kind of MinFire, uh, MinFire initiative is a great group that does uh, kind of fire res firefighter resiliency, emergency responder resiliency training, and I'm a peer counselor for them. And one of the things I notice so often is for people, firefighters reporting um, like PTSD or traumatic e exposures, um, there's always this, or frequently, not always, excuse me this sense that I'm haunted because I failed the person, right? We came to a car crash, you know, the person was, you know, the card flipped over, we couldn't cut them out, they were dead, it was horrible. You know, we got to this fire, I pulled the person out, we tried to get them back, we couldn't revive them, I feel responsible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I, I kind of ask, it's like, well, did you cause the car crash? You didn't. You showed up to something that had already happened. Did you do your best and did you follow procedures? You did. Like that that misguided sense that we're supposed to be the ones who solve everything mm -hmm. sets a lot of us up. Like that's the Trojan horse through which I think a lot of the 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 traumatic, the post-traumatic stress, whatever you know, however you want to call it, the guilt. But Right, because you this a notion that we're supposed to solve everything, and that's not true. But what I realized is that if you look at all three of the emergency services, and that's something I say in the book, that right now our safety net or the holes in our safety net are caught by three roving groups, paramedics, firefighters, and police officers in, in most cities. 
Right. You know, you mentioned a non-emergency line. Most of the time, the non-emergency line is either if, if it's after work hours, it's going to be a recording or an email. Mm. But if you, depending on what you say, they're going to tell you to call 911 anyhow. Right. And so it's it's well meant, but still kind of limited in process. A lot of it comes from money. Right. There aren't people to dedicate to do that. But your emergency responders and that we are the ones who are who are tasked with answering every single piece of of our societal's woes that have nowhere else to go. Right. Mm-hmm. There are there are no other options. Right. And so you think about firefighters want to fight fire and be, you know, have great mustaches and roll around big red trucks and help people. Police officers want to fight crime or, or, you know, fight for justice, protect the public and help people. Paramedics want to do advanced pre-hospital training and help people. Right. That's what we go and we go into our training and that's what they're talked about. I know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the way that like the warrior training and us against them has set a lot of police officers up to fail. And it hasn't necessarily been replaced with much firefighters. You go up to the, you know, the training grounds and it's all the emphasis on fire. Are you going to be able to carry that person out? Can you fight a fire? Do you have it in you? Or do you know, are you tough enough to fight that place? Right. And so there's all this hypothetical stuff. And the fact is, fires are scary and deadly and chaotic. And you, we do fight them. But mm-hmm. with smoke detectors and with advances in technology, with 911, call, like a faster 911 system, um, and with so many of the buildings that were burned down in the 70s and 80s, no fire department in the country really is, is fighting as many fires as they used to. Because, you know, now you know, a smoke detector will, will go off when your light, you know, your bathroom light gets too hot or when your food is smoldering on the stove where that used to become a fire and that would be a fire. So we don't have those fires anymore because the smoke detector handles it Mm -hmm. or gets people aware sooner. But meanwhile, we still do have them. And while we're waiting for these far less frequent fires, we're going out on 911 calls, emergency medical calls. And those calls have increased every year for 40 years, 35, 40 years. Since I started in 2000, we've almost doubled the number of calls for service we run every year with fewer people, right? Mm. So we're running the tires off these very big trucks doing 911 emergency calls, many of which aren't 911. So on one hand, so that's a constant cognitive dissonance. I am a firefighter. My job is to go in and fight fires. And then we wait and wait and wait and wait for the fires and I don't write at all, or I write almost not at all about firefighting in this mm-hmm. book. I talk a little bit about our risk taking and our and kind of a cultural, like a lot of it's like what I say is ego and insecurity. You know, men particularly don't want to look bad. They don't want to admit they don't know things. And so they fake it and they fake it. And that causes harm to themselves and others because we make bad decisions on fire grounds. But a lot of it's also you learn in a panic state. So you start off and everything's kind of chaotic and panicked. And the idea that with fire said, eventually you'll learn what you're doing and you'll, you'll seen enough fires that you're salty and you understand stuff, but that's not actually a pedagogical approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the nerd in me, the te- former teacher in me from the very beginning is like, oh, this is really um, ingrained, but frankly dumb. Like this isn't a way, like we don't have actual factual discussions of what happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or they are, they aren't learning from, 
what mistakes right. other you know crews have made or right. take, making those right. efforts to shift those approaches it's like a system that's stuck back backwards and not looking right. ahead and so you make that point just so um you know vibrantly in in this book and um you know i i think we can have a lot of empathy for the people that are in that world and um you know are are struggling i think you mentioned that sort of that that idea of how they process what's happening to them it was a surprise to me that that uh talking about an event kind of happens in the fire truck uh maybe on the way back right but that's it for the processing it it it, it gets turned sideways as you mentioned into um all kinds of uh risky behaviors and um you know sort of a feeling like well we're firefighters we don't ask for help we we give help um, you know, I was surprised to learn that in, in their own lives, so many of them take risks with things like not wearing helmets or, um, you know, going uh, sort of adrenaline junkie stuff, um, which is feels contrary to if you see that every day that you would not um, know that some of those things have have issues. Um, it's almost like an, an avoidance culture, right, that that they don't want to process it. So uh, this this book brings to light all of that. I want to tell our listeners that we're talking about trauma sponges, dispatches from the scared heart. No, scared. I said it. Scarred heart of emergency <laughs> response. I did. I looked at that word several times when I would pick up the uh, it's book. Thrown, it's, thrown, it's either scared or sacred, but yes. it's scarred. Yep, exactly. And but I think it's important because it, all three it of is. those kind of play a role in, in what's in this yes. book. Um, Jeremy Norton is my guest on Arts Any Radio. He is going to be at Content Bookstore in Northfield on uh, Thursday, February 8th at 7 p.m. That's 2024. So if you're ever listening to a rebroadcast, this is uh, the date, but the book will still be out. You can come join us. I, I've, I think I have, like, again we could have a whole another hour conversation about this because there's so it's so rich with so much that's happening in here um and there there are some funny things we should tell people because you you did talk about that that it's not just all um this you know uh translation of the the processes and systems uh my favorite was i I laughed out loud so the rancho gordo bean club (laughs) (laughs) is shout out to rancho gordo yes (laughs) um because well there's a lot of humor within the that's you know gallows humor uh is one of the ways that 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 things get processed when you're dealing with things that are just impossible to talk about um this was during the pandemic and um maybe i should let you tell the story but there was you know this was when we didn't know what was happening right we had no idea what was going on with um, you know, you were right there on the front lines responding to all of those calls. And uh, I don't know. Do you want to tell the story or should we save it for readers? Oh, no. No, I can, I can say it quickly. No, no, that – sure. I mean, that I mean, the very serious part of the pandemic, and particularly as a captain where I'm responsible for my crew, so for those first months of the pandemic, you know, I was going into – medical calls alone where we didn't know whether you know you were going to get covid from your fingers from the air from whatever and so and and so there was a kind of a steeliness of that and you know and 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 i say kind of we as a like as a culture within the fire service and and this does touch on what you were just saying a minute ago that that our sense that because we do this work we are somehow 
uh, protected from the consequences of being human, right? <laughs> and so, so many firefighters were like, well, we don't show fear. We don't worry about that stuff. That can't bother us. And so, so many of my coworkers ended up getting oh. COVID, not from saving lives, but from going out in public on their off days and getting COVID through normal exposure and then coming back into stations. I mean, so there's a lot of failure, but one of the things we did and was happening before COVID as well is my uh, dear friend, my driver, Tracy, was a, is, she's a great cook and, and subscribed to the Rancho Gordo Bean Club, which is situated in California. So they sent her all these different legumes every month. So she would come in and cook and there's never, there's never too much garlic. So we ate healthily, <laughs> but with lots and lots of garlic and beans. And so at two o'clock in the morning, when you wake up and you throw your mask on to go on a call, the, 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 the acidity of our breath with nothing but garlic and beans. And then the pungence of our flatulence, um, was constant and profound, but it also meant that we didn't have COVID because we could smell. That's right. Um, and, <laughs> and so, but no, I, I, like, I think there's like, this is the thing that this job, I, and, and there are like lots of jobs like this where because we are seeing so much and there is a degree of being an adrenaline junkie um, and, and being up for all sorts of challenges, there is a lust for life often. I think there is this enjoyment of the world and we are generally happy. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, or our culture, we often get used to grousing about stupid stuff, mm. but most of us really embrace life because we see how finite it is, how fragile. Um, and then most of the humor, because we see so much stuff that's just preposterous. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, are, you know, like, and back in the safety of the rig, when it's just the three of us, or if we're actually having correct staffing, the four of us, you know, we will laugh about what we see laughing about not at our, our patients or the civilians, but it's because there is something kind of the, like what I call the human circus, you see the goofy stuff. And, you know, you laugh or because the other part of it is we see so much heartbreaking stuff that will break us. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I think that's, you know, and and I encourage through the book kind of what I call a radical compassion. Right. Like I've felt through the past four years of all the upheaval and chaos, like I feel better about coming to work. I feel clear about a mission. I feel, as I say, congruent with myself for what we do and also you know, a lot of times we're not doing much more than just bearing witness to people, whether it's a minor issue or it's their last breaths. And so being present, holding steady, making human connection, that is enriching for us. It's, it's ennobling for us and it's serving the public in a truest sense. And I think that is the essence of emergency response. And I deeply believe as much as I'm critical with a lot of our kind of maladaptive behaviors and habits, I believe that the majority, the vast majority of my coworkers in Minneapolis, but in St. Paul, in Northfield, all across the state and across the country, the emergency service people do right and try to help out. And I think that's true. And I, you know, I can go almost anywhere and think if I'm having, if I crash my car in whatever state and whatever city I'm in, whoever shows up will do their damnedest to get me out. And that is something lovely. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is at, at the heart of this job. And, and we should continue to hold these people in high esteem. And, uh, but we can all work together to maybe make some changes that make 
the way that the world works now reflect what happens in those responses. That's a very simplified way of, of looking at it. Uh, there's uh, so much more. I think I had probably 20 more questions that I could have asked you. And so <laughs> um, I might just want to end with, um, you know, one section of the book gives some advice about living, which I, I think actually that's the, the thing I'm taking away most from the book is um, that being better at living through learning about your experiences and you give some great advice and I thought this this was um, something that you you wanted readers to make connections to their own lives and habits and you say some some valid advice stop smoking exercise more drink less eat less wear a seatbelt wear a helmet crank crack whoop I got those backwards crack and crank heroin and PCP remain bad for you don't trifle with them walk your dog, complete your advanced medical directives, have a DNR, DNI, not just on file, but signed and stuck to your fridge. Be brave and have the hard talks about illness and dying with those you love. So it's sort of we're, we're embrace the living and the dying, both in in what we're doing in your through your work. I'm gonna make a poster of that. That is just like <laughs> really great stuff. So um, but the one that threw me was walk your dog. Tell, that one surprised me. Tell me why you added that to the list. Well, I, I mean, because Fido needs a walk, but also, <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> no, no, because getting up, people ask me like, oh, how do you process all this stuff? And I say like, you know, I try much of the year I bike to and from work, which gives me a, you know, like a, 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 nat- a passage through nature. Mm. You know, I'm able so to bike mostly along the paths. Yep. Being outdoors, being motion and then walking, the like doing something gets grounds us in the world and also allows us to kind of take our mind off the crap. And so being outside and moving, it's a great way to fight depression. It's a great way to stay grounded. Um, And I also want to say that uh, just to wrap up that one of the points that really started, like grabbed me in ways that I, I was surprised when I was first working on the book, but I think it's because I'm older that my parents are older and I'm getting now much more understanding as I go to calls, how much and how profoundly our cultural disconnect and denial of the aging and dying process, mm. how much that is a widespread issue and how much I think that is something that I really want to try to campaign. And I'm certainly not alone. Like there are lots of people who are trying to talk about this, getting humans to accept that life is finite and that as it's ending, we can make choices to accept it and accept that our loved ones are dying or passing, you know, that they're running out of days. And because what we end up seeing as responders and what the people in the hospitals end up seeing are all these people who should be allowed to sit and watch the sunrise and sunset in a bed and die in the comfort of their home with medications. But instead, they are sent to the hospital for procedures that will do nothing for them they are tests are done on them they get in they get pneumonia they get intubated they fall down on the floor and firefighters like me have to do absolutely gratuitous and invasive cpr that just demolishes an elderly body it's Mm. all trauma and the people who were in denial that adds to their guilt right so that our disconnect from death and dying or dying and death excuse me causes so much more moral trauma to emergency medical people, but also to the families themselves. And that's really something that I, I'd love to campaign on and just try to spread an awareness of because being loving your life and accepting that it will, is finite 
enhances our connection and then supporting people as they're dying rather than hiding from it diminishes like diminishes the guilt and the suffering that happens and that's something that above all I really I really strive to share yeah there's some scenes in the book and maybe we can touch on this for just a few minutes of the um you know you you go to a call and you know there might be somebody who has just you know some you know some warmth or or a possible you know a rhythm uh, that that you can you know think of the heart that they and and you are required to do um CPR on them unless they have that DNR DNI posted on the refrigerator and the family is w- aware of that and just you you give us some insight into what that does to the body and to to for you to be there and say you know you, family members will be screaming do something do something you know they haven't even come to the um, realization sometimes that their their loved one is at you know at the end of their life or they have already died maybe even in, in some cases um, it's just heartbreaking um, and so to have to to live that it it would change a lot of things in our world if people were thinking about it as um, instead of try to do everything you can to save somebody who might not make it or or when when they come out the after as we as I talked about in the book that I did last week um, sure. might be completely unacceptable um, you know it, 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 you don't think about that when you think about doing CPR on a you know an older person how much damage that might do or a person who has, has cancer or you know uh, uh, so there is so much to be learned from that and that was very eye-opening for me yeah, thank you. I, I really recommend uh, Dr. Sunita Puri's book, That Good Night, which came out two years ago. Mm. She's a palliative care doctor and she's a great writer. Um, and and that that like her mission is kind of to help people understand that you're not giving up on someone by accepting that stage four cancer is terminal. And part of the problem is a lot, you know, lots of doctors go through medical school with more, you know, no more than a brief unit on talking about death with families and they want to avoid it. So they will say in technical language, your person is dying, but you as a family member can't hear it, don't understand it and come back thinking there's going to be some cure. And so they keep calling 911 for people because we think the hospital is going to fix somebody, but you can't fix dying, mm-hmm. right? For something that is for something that is a systemic failure. Like if you're choking, yes, let's get that grape out of your throat. But, you know, if you've got stage four cancer or if you're just old, like that's the thing is we are only allotted so many heartbeats and so many breaths. And so we will see people who are clearly dying and the families want something done, but what they want is to, to forestall death. They want so-and-so to live forever. And at this point, I say over 70, you're getting into extra innings. Over 80, you're at the end of your time. Over 90, good, you know, hooray for you. And over 100, high five, right? But it, it, what, like, what do you think is going to happen? Someone, like they're dying. Like, like they just will stop. And and our disconnect from that is stunning. And of course, we walk in, I take one look, it's like, oh, that person's dead or that person's about to die. And the family's like, well, no, this is, you know, this is mama and I want her, you know, she was so great six months ago or I've got a wedding this spring. I want her to be there. And it's like, right, mm. but that's not how life works. And I don't mean it callously because then if mama goes unresponsive and I'm crushing her ribs and we're doing all this completely useless 
and very invasive inter- interventions that won't work, mm-hmm. but the family demands it because they think that's what they need to do. Like that is that is a moral injury, and it's and it's a disconnect from, you know, from the life process, right? And that the life process is we are given however many days we're given, and it ends, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and that's what and, and that's what me and mine end up seeing is those endings in various forms. Yeah, and I love there's a phrase in here that comes up a couple times about gravity and biology. If we just could accept <laughs> the uh, risks of gravity and biology, um, we could make better choices. Uh, and and I mean we have scratched the surface of this book because there is. Um, there's more stories you uh, give your perspective of responding to the call with with George Floyd. You talk about um, your time as a teacher at a boarding school in Chattanooga that, you know, sort of opened your eyes to some of these uh, systemic and racist and um, cultural issues and, you know, educational issues. I mean, there's just, it's really a brilliant book. And I want to thank you for putting it into the world, for telling your truth, for um, allowing us to spend some time with you on those calls and uh, then taking zooming in, but also zooming out because we all um, need to see that and your perspective is invaluable. So this book, Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response, Jeremy Norton, just incredible. I hope maybe we'll have another conversation. I hope so. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it, Apollo. It was great to talk to you. It was great. We'll see you at content. I am so looking forward to it. I, I, I like the honor of being able to travel around the state. Or actually, I've gone a couple places around the country and talk talk about the book, talk about the stuff. It's it's just been a thrill and an honor. And the conversations uh, with the audience have, have all been great. Uh, really good, engaging questions because there is such a range uh, of things to talk about, from emergency response to end of life issues to sociology to all of that. And uh, I love it. And and I'm lo- really looking forward to coming down to content next Thursday. Perfect. We'll see you there. And um, folks, uh, pick up the book, Trauma Sponges. I hope you all have a great day. This is Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Please remember to always add some Art Zany to your life. And in the meantime, until next time, enjoy your imagination.